0: Well, hello, welcome to the Theology Pubcast. It's great to have you with us. And I am in Connecticut. And Tom is in Connecticut, but we're in different parts of Connecticut. And Glenn, of course, is in Indiana, which is, you know, a reason to feel sad for him. <laughs> no, I'm just People in, uh, listener. I'd rather be here than in Connecticut. <laughs> Nothing personal, guys. <laughs> well, there you go, folks from Indiana. You have Glenn's strong endorsement of the superiority of uh, Indiana to Connecticut. Anyway, you may want, be wondering, who are these guys? Well, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor and I actually serve a church in the Pacific Northwest, but this is my other home. I've got two homes. I am a jet setter. I've got a home in Connecticut and I got a home in Battleground, Washington. So be impressed. Anyway, uh, I've written some books,
1: uh, one of them being in the house of Tom Bombadil. But
0: enough about me. How about you, Tom?
1: I'm Tom Price. I teach systematic theology, Christian ethics, and uh, a little philosophy, apologetics, uh, one of the places of which is Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. All right, great. And uh,
0: today is your day, Glenn. But before you launch into the topic of the day, tell us about
2: yourself. I am Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired history professor from Central Connecticut State University, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and my main job is a ministry associate with Reflections Ministries. I've uh, heard a lot of uh, the reformed guys that I frequently uh, make fun of here. (laughs) Um, I should note that I consider myself reformed as well, so this is um, friendly (laughs) fire. I've I've heard a lot of rather negative comments about the idea of mysticism.
0: Uh huh.
2: And what I'd like to talk about here is what is right and wrong with
0: mysticism. Okay. Before, and before you go any further, Glenn, you got to put your great Karnak turban on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I
2: I'm I, I, I'm afraid it's in the laundry. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, when we use the word mysticism, you know, I understand why people have a negative reaction to it. A lot of people associate it with sort of New Agey, woo-woo kinds of things, uh, or Eastern religions and practices, um, and so on. But there's actually a, if you look at the history of this, there's actually a legitimate Christian approach to mysticism that I think that uh, we lose a bit by ignoring it. Now, it has to be said, you know, when we talk about mysticism, there are a lot of ways this can be abused and it has been abused. There's a lot of stinking weird stuff in the past with Christian mysticism. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that doesn't mean that all of it is necessarily a bad thing. To give you just two quick examples, no, it's St. Patrick's Day, so let's do three. (laughs) In chronological order. (laughs) Uh, St. Patrick, uh, after he, you know, he'd been kidnapped as a 16-year-old, taken to Ireland, was a slave there for about five years, escaped, returned home, swore he would never leave home again. And then he had a dream or a vision of some sort in which he saw someone from Ireland giving him a book that was the voice of the Irish people and saying, a holy child come save us. Uh And he took this as a call from God to return to Ireland uh, as a missionary, much like St. Paul had the dream of the man from Macedonia. Right, And in fact, Patrick returned to Ireland and thousands, maybe tens of thousands of pagans converted to Christianity as a result of that. Now, it's really hard, it seems to me, to argue either that this was something that Patrick sort of cooked up on his own, given the fact that he really did not want to return to Ireland. It was very dangerous for him. He really wanted to stay home and all that. It's rather hard to argue. It seems to me that this was something that he just sort of, well, dreamed up on his own. Right. Um, and given the results, it's also kind of hard to argue that God wasn't in on it.
0: Right. Right. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, Second example, Someone that will come as a surprise, I suspect, to a lot of people,
0: Thomas Aquinas. Uh-huh. Yes, I, th- I think I know the one you're go- what you're going to talk about.
1: The, 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 yeah, yeah the Aquinas, life, the yeah. great
2: uh, rational theologian, one of the arguably one of the finest minds that uh, has ever walked the earth. I mean, to put Aquinas in perspective, he had three secretaries, hmm. and what he would do is he'd lecture to the first taking down dictation, until he signaled, wait a minute, I need to finish writing here. He would then go to the second and lecture on a different topic, and then to the third and lecture on a different topic. And then he would come back to the first and pick up on the word he left off on and <laughs> do the same with all three. He rotated through them, giving three lectures
0: simultaneously. That's great. That's great. You know, I, I, I mean, I think, this, I think everybody, secular people, everybody, knows that aquinas was one of the great minds in human history.
1: Yeah. One quick thing and I don't want to throw things off but Mortimer Adler who who ended up converting to Christianity the great books guy and it, it really was through aquinas's uh, a lot of his arguments for the existence of god that that started to change his intellectual to him. Well, he was trying to convince students about uh, through those arguments. And one of his students just spent hours and hours with Mortimer Adler and said, I can't get the logic, but I don't understand the terms. He finally said, just tell me something about Aquinas's life. And he was describing how he would often have to ride 13 hours a day on horseback. And the guy stopped, he goes, why didn't you start with that? No, No one could possibly think they could achieve what Aquinas did. Riding horseback 13 hours a day, unless there is a God. <laughs> anyway, I didn't want to lose lose that.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, at, at the end of Aquinas' life, he never finished his greatest work, the Summa Theologica. And the reason is he had a vision of God. And he, when he spoke to his assistant, he you know, he talked about this vision and he said. That everything I have written about God is nothing but straw compared to what what I have experienced in my encounter with him. And he said, basically, at this point, all I'm doing is waiting for my death. And he gave up writing. He gave up everything. Mm -hmm. Now – again, brilliant intellect. A lot of the reform people are neotomists. They really like what, what Thomas did. And yet here he had some sort of experience of the transcendent that made him, gave him the sense that all of the great intellectual work that he had done was worthless compared to what he had experienced in his encounter with God.
0: It reminds me now, a little bit. Reminds me a little bit of Pascal's uh, conversion, as well. Mm-hmm. You know where he uh... the night of fire,
2: right? Yeah, um, Pascal. For those of you who don't know, Pascal, brilliant Catholic French thinker, um, actually had a um, a conversion experience, and it was an experience that transformed his entire life. So that he spent the rest of his life really pursuing, um, as an amateur theologian, pursuing uh, arguments uh, about God and, and uh, for reform in the church and things like that. Yeah, However, think- we don't have to be in the Catholic world. Let's go to somebody that Reformed people know and love, John Calvin. Not a guy you would normally think of as a mystic. Yet, when you read in Institute's book four, I forgot the chapter off the top of my head, on the sacraments, he says about the Eucharist, about the Lord's Supper, that he experiences more in the Eucharist, in the Lord's Supper, he experiences more than he knows how to put into words that is a form of christian mysticism there is a mysticism uh again we, we really need to define the terms but that that is a kind of mysticism that he is talking about in the experience he has within the lord's supper
0: now uh on this point glenn are you going to get to the greek word mysterion and, and you know how that's translated into the english uh, or the to sacraments and stuff like that yeah, I can go there. Um, yeah, it might be good, because I think that sometimes people will, will hear the word mysticism and say, well, what's the biblical basis for that? Well, the, actually, the Bible mm-hmm. does use the word mys- uh, mystery or mysterion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and anyway, it's, it's, uh, it's actually conveying something that Calvin was getting at right there.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, the idea of mystery is something in Greek, the word mystery, mysterion, refers to something that was once hidden but now is revealed. Okay, And interestingly enough, it translates into Latin using the word sacramentum, sacrament. Mm. So we have right there a connection, which actually takes us to the early church. In the early, well, in secular writing in the first century, the term mysticism, that particular, the, the word that we anglicize as mysticism, was used in, uh, in Greek thought to refer to a lot of Neoplatonic stuff. Uh, that was a that was kind of mysticism. Um, some other things as well, um, mystery religions, things like that can be connected into it. But it's picked up in the early church and used in three senses, There's mysticism surrounding scripture. There's mysticism surrounding the liturgy and particularly the sacraments and particularly the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, which is what Calvin is very directly picking up on. And then there's also what most of us would think of as mysticism, which is surrounding this issue of contemplation, uh, contemplative prayer, those kinds of things. Um, In order, scripture... uh, Basically, what you're looking at here are people like the Antiochine school, which argued that all scripture has both a literal and a figurative meaning, an allegorical meaning. Or in the Alexandrian school, this gets expanded further by people like Origen. Mysticism there refers to looking for deeper hidden meanings in scripture. Now, this is going to raise a lot of hackles about people because we and we've talked a little bit about this before. We're really big on uh, grammatical, literal, historical-type interpretation, and I've actually seen a lot of people in the evangelical world argue that you should never go beyond that. Hmm. The problem with that is that the Apostle Paul emphatically did go beyond it in Galatians, for example, where, Mount Sin- where Hagar represents uh, Mount Sinai and the law, Um, And so on. He is reading that allegorically. He's really reading it uh, uh, Christologically, frankly.
0: Yeah, this is this is a convention in the in the you know, that period of time that that wouldn't have struck people even among the Jews who were, you know, sometimes his interlocutors as all that Mm -hmm. odd. This was something that rabbis were doing uh, at that time.
2: Yeah, and we certainly there's a, a strong Jewish tradition of this, and we see it picked up by Paul. We see it picked up by the early church fathers, and I would argue we even see it implicitly in Jesus on the road to Emmaus.
0: Yeah, I think that's right.
2: Um, where where Jesus is saying the scriptures say that the Messiah had to be had to be crucified and raised on the third day. Well, where does it say that? right <laughs> using historical grammatical literal type readings, you're never going to find that.
0: Yeah, I think maybe maybe a, a thing that we ought to say at this point is that the you know literal and the grammatical and historical uh, are great. We don't yeah we don't uh, cast dispersions on those uh, interpretive frameworks they're they're really important uh, It's just our problem is that the tendency has been to limit uh, interpretation exclusively to that, and the tendency on the part of some people to say it's unscriptural to do otherwise, when in fact what we have in Scripture are, you know, proof texts <laughs> that demonstrate mm-hmm. that it was done by
1: apostles and, right. the, and the Lord. And in and, the early church, this is this is standard. Right. And I think one of the things you see um, based on, really, from the New Testament, own kind of witness is that the New Testament's witness is not that if you could use the the mere tools of logic, reasoning, and and you know history and language, all of a sudden you're able to unpack the full revelatory significance of the text. That's that's naturalism. Scripture requires conversion and it requires a conversion of one's vision which is pneumatological. It's in the spirit. Spirit, illum- it, it, spirit is at the heart of putting together the very wording of the words of the text, but it's also at the center of the interpretation of the church. And because of that, you're dealing with spirit communing with spirit, which people don't like because they think that's subjective. It's not subjective. It's actually the, 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 the deepest form of being grounded in reality. The question is, it's the church's converting being being changed from from kind of physical sight to spiritual sight, which is really I think this this dimension you're getting at, Glenn, about the the, the mystical dimension that is at the heart, I think, of real biblical realism.
0: Yeah, I want to want to make a couple of quick comments here because I know you're just chomping at the bit, Glenn, to get to some deeper things. But uh, a couple of quick thoughts. I think if you talk to any uh, adult convert or even an, a convert who maybe came into the faith as a teenager they can they can tell you that there was a point at in time when reading the scripture was dry uh, and, a, and an exercise that did not uh in, you know and nourish them spiritually and then a conversion and then went, and, and after which there was a there was a marked change you know in how they were able to uh, read and understand. I remember in my own case, you know, I, I went from, Oh, I've got to do this because this is what Christians are supposed to do to voraciously consuming yeah. the Bible. Yeah. Uh, and what we're saying is that this is a kind of mystical, uh, experience, you know, even though it's fully, you know, grounded in, uh, devotional, uh, practice in reading scripture. I think the other thing, though, is that some of us have known people who have kind of gone off the rails, yeah. <laughs> who 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 say all kinds of things uh, that they claim uh, are derived from scripture, and you de- and and you just say, "Are you serious? That's pretty nutty," uh, you know. So I, I I understand the impulse, particularly uh, with reformed people who maybe have come into the reformed faith out of Pentecostalism or out of pietism, and they're yeah. very uh, suspicious of all the kind of freaky things that they are fleeing. Yeah. So anyway, those things yeah. are mine, yeah.
2: Yeah, one of the things that you need to keep in mind through this is there is, there does need to be controls in place, and both the Antiochian and the Alexandrians had those controls in place, as the early church did, um, and fundamentally what it uh, what it points to, I think, is what I said before. It's a christological hermeneutic that, as you read the text, you can look in it for typology. Um, you know, how are these different figures types of Christ? Uh, you can look. There, there, there is room for allegory in this, um, and so on. Uh, I'm not going to get into all that. That would be sort of a separate, uh, a separate. Um, uh, podcast uh, going into the, the various ways that, that the, the, the controls that were in place and the ways that people thought about these things. Um, but again, if you read the early church fathers, this is all over the place in them. So that's the first area that qualifies, uh, or at least that the early church understood as a form of mysticism, seeking out the things that are hidden in the text, something that's hidden that's now revealed. Uh, the second one was in the liturgy and particularly the Eucharist. Um, we, I think, have a tendency to look at the Eucharist in pretty materialistic terms. Um, the bread and wine are bread and wine, and that's all that they are. Um, there's no, you know, it, it's a memorial. Um, it's, uh, that's all it is. Now, that's important and a good thing, and we're doing it because Jesus told us to do it. But it doesn't have much more significance than that. Uh, I would argue that this is, um, there are real questions that get raised by First Corinthians uh, if you take that view. So for example, Paul says that failure to discern the body has led many among you to be sick and some even to have died. Now, if this is nothing more than a an ordinance that we do because we were told to do it, that doesn't have any greater significance to that. How do you understand the idea that people can get sick or die from not discerning the body in the sacrament? Um, that, it seems to me, poses a real dilemma, to that sort of minimalistic view of what's going on there. Now, that doesn't mean we've got to go with transubstantiation. (laughs) It doesn't mean we have to go with impenation, which is the proper term for what we usually call consubstantiation, which is the Lutheran (laughs) view. Consubstantiation technically is something slightly different. Um, You know, but... We need to recognize that there's something, like Calvin did, that there's something more going on here than raising our glass to our departed leader.
0: Right, and, right. You know, when we, when we think about that, uh, you know, the idea that uh, in some real sense, we are spiritually fed through the sacrament, and we are in some way uh, raised into the heavenly places and are uh, communing with the Lord, uh, that is about as uh mystical, and that by the way, what I've just uh, you know summarized is the, the reformed understanding, <laughs> about specifically as, Calvin. Yeah, that's right. It, yeah. It, it, it that's about as mystical as you can get.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, and and he liked it. it. If I remember his part of the liturgy, the part he loved the most was, and we lift our hearts to the Lord. It was the it yep. was this kind of transcending communing, um, and and um. And it was, uh, you know, along with that. I mean, it's it's out of a lot of the reform tradition. You even have like Louis Berkhof's systematic theology. I mean, you can't get kind of more conservative Dutch kind of uh, reform theology than that. And his whole talk of our union with Christ is mystical union, and he will he will mm-hmm. take um, he will take. You know, time to distinguish kind of the kind of mysticism that where your identity gets completely fused with another. And he said that's not what is meant by Christian. The Christian union is that that in this union, actually, the closer you get to God, the more distinct you are in the gift of the your own creatureliness. Um, That's one of the amazing things uh, about that kind of vision. But you also are becoming god-like in the process as well you're being united in all of the perfections are being communicated to you that can be communicated so you have that level then you have this notion that paul talks about and um where he talks it kind of moves into to a different person he goes i knew a man once who was caught up into the third heavens right So here is this encounter, this mystical encounter that is central to his theology. But then he wants to come back, and he wants to do what a lot of the classical mystical tradition in Christianity did: is kind of cloak that in the cloud of unknowing and say, "I don't, you know, I can't talk about those things that I saw." And that was a legitimate part of communing with with God um, that is grounded right there in the text. That there are these mystical. Ways in which we commune with God to where they can become places of un you can't really utter what goes on there and you you can't turn that into theology but you want your theology to take you there you know right
2: and that actually uh will move off uh, well well let mean let me uh, that actually moves into the third branch of, okay. of mysticism in the early church but but before we get there just just a couple of observations about the Lord's Supper I'm not going to do baptism here. A couple of observations about the Lord's Supper that I think we often miss. Um, The first of them is that in 1 Corinthians, where Paul talks about um, the body, you know, failure to discern the body, um, there are two ways that you can take that. One of them is the traditional sort of Catholic and Orthodox and so on way of doing it, which is to say that it's the body of Christ that is present in the elements. Okay. That's, you know, I, I, I think that that's probably legitimate. Um, in some sense. But the other one is throughout 1 Corinthians, Paul's use of the term body of Christ is a metaphor for the church. And when you look at what Paul was telling them they were doing wrong in communion, what you see happening is people showing up early, eating, drinking, and all of that kind of thing. And then when the poor who get out of work late show up, there's no food or anything left for them. It was a communal meal as much as it was a communion service. Right. That's failure to discern the body. It's failure to recognize that the people that you are with in the church are the body of Christ. Right. Yeah. So we have to recognize that the body refers to the church, and failure to discern our unity in Christ in the church <laughs> is a big problem. You know, when you look at the Didache, the what the earliest post New Testament document, actually, maybe some people think it was written before the end of the New Testament. When you look at what he has, to, uh, the the author of that has to say about the Eucharist, you, you get an overwhelming focus on the idea of the Church, the unity of the Church. I'd encourage you to look that up and read it. Mm-hmm um you know as many as the uh, as the uh the wheat on many hills is gathered together to form one loaf so we are one in christ you know it's this this kind of imagery however you can't leave it at that because paul says further the bread that we break is it not fellowship with the word is koinonia it's fellowship or participation is it not fellowship with the body of Christ well you can say that's the church the problem is he then goes on to say the cup of blessing which we bless is it not participation or fellowship in the blood of Christ and when you get the blood added to the body it blows the metaphor to pieces it it can't just be the local church there is something found going on here that we
0: tend to overlook. So I guess, I guess the thing that, that I'd like to dig into, maybe, maybe you intend to get into it, uh, Glenn is uh, discernment. So I've had, uh, you know, uh, various experiences in my life that have puzzled me. I've not been sure how to understand them necessarily, you know, uh, uh, fully. And I've, I've and, and then I've had emotions that kind of uh, sweep me along, sweep me up and carry me along. And I wonder sometimes too about sort of the manipulative techniques of some uh, people whose, who, whose methods are, in, are really designed to manipulate me and make me feel a certain way, that kind of thing. How do we sort all that out? What, what is a genuine encounter with God and what is just kind of getting worked up in a worship service because you raise your hands and sing the same song over and over again, like a million times? You know, what, how do how do we sort all that out? <laughs> um, before we get to that, I think that's an important <laughs> question, but that brings us to
2: our third type of mysticism in the church. And that is what I think most of us think of when we talk about mysticism, which is this sort of experiential kind of thing where we... Get a sense of uh, connection with the transcendent. Now, it can be something big and flashy. It can involve visions. It can involve all kinds of things, but it can also be something that's just sort of very quiet. So, Lectio Divina, for example, um, is a uh, approach to structured meditation on Scripture that is intended or designed to help you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to you through the text. And in my practice of Lectio Divina, which has been really transformative in my life, frankly, uh, in my practice of it, um, what I find is frequently what I hear the Holy Spirit saying through the text is not what I would preach on if I were preaching that text, because it's not exegetically sound exactly but through the text the spirit has directed my mind to
0: areas that i need to address okay now you you have dug up something that will make a lot of folks feel a little bit uneasy oh
2: of course <laughs> like like i said this is this is this is the one where i'm going to be uh, getting <laughs> into trouble um yeah so um so uh, the, the the questions that I would have is are, first of all, do you believe that the Holy Spirit can speak to you through Scripture? Do you believe that the Holy Spirit is limited to what he can say to you through Scripture by the historical, grammatical, and literal approaches to exegesis? Personally, I am not inclined to tell the Holy Spirit what he can or cannot do with the word. Now, the thing to understand here is there are controls. Yeah. There is nothing that I have heard, for lack of a better word here, there's nothing that I've gotten through my practice of Lexio that contradicts anything that is exegetically sound. In many cases, though, it involves particular issues that exist within my life or particular lacks in my understanding of what scripture is telling me about, for example, what Paul means when he says you are in Christ. So it's connected to the text, but it's not necessarily exegetically straight out of the text.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think you're right to hit that there are controls. I mean, the church for a long time talked about different levels of meaning in a text, firstly grounded in in the kind of normative sense of the text. So the, the normative way it's pointing is going to give you kind of the groundwork from which to build the rest. But it recognizes the fact that, that okay, what a particular text meant at a particular moment and occasion um, grounds the, the spiritual truth and meaning. So that's kind of what's authoritative for the church as a whole, because that's the grounding text. But as it applies to different times, people, places, and everything else, um to to us in our personal devotions and communion with God, that's that that is not something that then just becomes subjective, but it's also not something that there becomes kind of the, the exegetical ground for everyone. And so that's a that's a kind of an interesting place um, where where you have a, a I mean this is very similar in theology. All true theology must be exegetically grounded uh, and and then kind of make its inferences from that. But if you're not also spiritually engaged and being converted in the process and and, and the like, then you aren't really, it really isn't a spiritual exercise at that point. It becomes something that is just dry you know, logarithms, if you will, <laughs> um, that are detached mm-hmm. from you and the spiritual life of the church. Now, a stronger notion of the church, I think, is one of the things where you find a little more flexibility with kind of these different dimensions, the devotional dimension versus the kind of exegetical, because what you have is the container of of, of theology usually summed up in confessions or creeds, Right. And so, so that's the container that that guides whether our our uh, interpretations are going outside or staying, you know with it within, and that we are genuinely communing, for example, with the Trinity um, or in the Incarnation. And so, I mean, that's kind of been one of the things that that kind of have put, checks on you know how far Mm -hmm. one's devotional readings should go go in the in in the direction of of what they're communing with the text and attaining yeah
2: yeah i think there's something really important that you said there you talk about devotional readings of the text one of the things that we have to realize is that we read different things in different ways and when it comes to scripture. There are multiple ways of reading scripture, all of which are legitimate, and each of which has its own value. Yeah. So formal study of the text, what I would describe as, as um, you know, the, the exegetical work, um, that is a, an essential to, to um, approaching biblical texts. Looking at that from the mystical sense, in the, from the early church's perspective, where you're looking for the Christological and salvation historical implications of the text, that's another approach to studying the text. But devotional reading is a different thing. In devotional reading, your goal, your purpose is something different from what your purpose is in formal study. And as a result, the rules in devotional reading, I think, are different than they are in formal study. And in fact, it has to be pneumatological. It has to be informed by the Spirit. That's not to say, again, that it'll ever contradict what is in the text. But there, but sometimes you will find things from reading the text, uh, you know, I, I firmly believe you will run into situations where you're reading the text where the Spirit directs your mind in ways that, don't fit standard study exegesis, but that they're nonetheless legitimate. It's, I'm not talking new revelation or anything like that. I'm talking about the spirit doing a personal application of the text. And that, it seems to me, is perfectly legitimate. By the way, another way of reading the text is to sit down and read entire books or multiple books in one sitting. It gives you a totally different perspective on what you're getting than if you're doing it a verse or a paragraph at a time. You know, so there are a lot of different ways of approaching it. and All of them have value.
0: Yeah, I guess a couple of things come to mind. One is is that, you know, as you were talking, Glenn, I thought about uh, Augustine's conversion and take and read, take and read, you know, Mm -hmm. the voice he heard Mm -hmm. and then he picks up scripture and then, you know, it falls open to that passage that he attributes to the conversion, you know. Anyway, there's that. But I think any preacher, and we have a number of, you know, people who, you know, pastors, men who preach the word uh, week in and week out. And I'm sure that that uh, guys who've done it for a while will be able to relate to what I'm about to say. And that is uh, sometimes you'll you'll uh, preach on a given Sunday and just feel like you've just done a horrible job. Uh, You weren't able to say a coherent thing the entire time, at least to, to you. But then someone will come up to you afterwards and say, that was amazing. God really spoke to me, and and uh, thank you very much. And then there are other times where you like you feel like you've hit it out of the park, you've hit you know a grand slam. Everything was just perfectly aligned. Your your points were all succinct. You were your your timing was impeccable. You were just awesome. You were taking notes on yourself. You were so good. And then there's like no response at all. It's like it's like oh yeah ho hum no no biggie nothing happened. Then there's another experience that guys, you know, who preach on a regular basis have, and that is people come to you and they say, you preached a sermon six years ago that changed my life. And you're like, really? What did I say? And then they'll tell you. And you (laughs) you think to yourself, I never said that. I know I never said that. I'm not sure I would ever even think of that. (laughs) And, but at the same time, they, they heard something as you were preaching, that God was doing and saying directly to them from the text. This past Sunday, I was talking about the big picture and the small picture. So anyways, we got the big picture, which is the grand historical sort of story of redemption, right? Now, if you focus on that, people can, can wonder, well, where do I fit in? I mean, what, what's in this for me? Am I, am I just a, a cog in a machine? Am I just another hey. sheep in a big sheepfold? Am I just a number? Uh, you know, what about me? and the, the the what i what i preached on this past sunday is that you find yourself in christ you're not lost in christ and that there is a name written on a on a stone a white stone that has it that has that'll be given to you that's known only to you and god in other words that name is is particular uh and it's uh you know we we talk about classes you know we think about like human nature men and women these are these are large uh, aggregations and uh even more than aggregations they're they're formal causes, but there's still a there's still an individual that God knows and God is addressing and it's that uh that uh, personal address that I think we're talking about here
1: yeah uh, it, it that's right
0: doesn't contradict the big picture uh in fact it's it fits into the big picture
2: yeah I think that that that's exactly right and what we see happening, I think, is, you know, for most people, for the vast majority of people, they're the, if they're going to have any kind of sense of direct connection with God, it's going to be in a very quiet way. It's not going to be Pascal's Night of Fire. It's not going to be Aquinas' vision. You know, it's not going to be Patrick's dream. For most people, it's going to be something sort of quiet and and um, you know the still small voice thing, um, and that's what you get. Oh, that's what I think the function of devotional reading is: it's to move you to the point where the whole you are you are doing everything in your power to put yourself in a position to hear what the Holy Spirit's actually saying to you at that moment. I would define now we haven't defined mysticism. Okay, define okay, we it. We haven't defi- really defined the word. <laughs> I would argue that that when you look through these things what we're talking about is functionally having some sort of a direct personal encounter with the transcendent god. This can be done in a very small and quiet way like the still small voice thing or it can be something really big. But for most people, it's going to be small, and that's okay. But what that does mean, what that does suggest, is that we shouldn't be too quick to dismiss Thomas Aquinas for his mystical experience, because it's something that we can't really relate to. We shouldn't be too quick to question Hildegard von Bingen, um, a, uh, a 12th century... None who is simultaneously one of the great artists of the period, painters, uh, a great writer of the period, and a great musician of the period, all of which she attributes to encounters she had with God, kind of on a regular basis. Yeah, we you know, we, we should. I, I think that we have to be careful not to try to force everything into our. Intellectual structures and categories, such that we lose sight of the fact that Aslan isn't a tame lion,
0: yeah. right, well, you know you know related to what you just said there, Glenn, uh almost none of us can actually relate to Thomas Aquinas on the intellectual level, let alone. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, and one of the things that's interesting yeah. talking of Aquinas, I mean, one of the things he was always notorious for saying is is that you know we we can't from our own human intellect know the essence of what God is. We can know that God is, right? We can know God through the effects of God, through the works of God, and then we can know certain um, th- that certain language applies to God in a particular way um, that that uh, but we can't know in any in any kind of other than just the kind of shared, shared analogies we have. We can't know the essence of God. But then the other thing is we definitely can't know through reason the Trinity. He disagreed with you know, other figures of you know, that thought you, we could almost climb through the ladder of our own intelligence up to the Trinity. And he said, no, this is revealed. And part of what is at the heart of that is that you are, you are now invited into the inner sanctum of the life of God, still not able to, to, to have anything analogous to the essence of God, but nevertheless, through Christ and in the Spirit, actually communing with the, the very heart of God. And this, this is where really where the, the cognitive and the intellectual uh, unfolds eventually into the spiritual. And that's what worship is. Worship and prayer are those aspects where the contemplative finally gives way to 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 encounter. Um, that's 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 what that's where we end up in and, and and reception, um, thankfulness, gratitude, and encounter.
0: You know as I think about what yeah. you just said there, Tom, and what we're talking about right now, uh, I can't help but think about how the world we live in today, the postmodern world, doesn't even leave room for us to have genuine communion with other human beings. In other Mm. words, we're so radically uh, isolated uh, and sort of captive to our sort of intellectual sort of, sort of inner, inner worlds, you know, sort of, uh, you know, socially constructed as they are. Nevertheless, we are, according to the postmodernists anyway, we're trapped in our heads. We can't have genuine, uh, uh, you know interaction with anybody because we're always suspicious that there's something going on uh, within, uh where uh somebody's taking advantage of us and you know I know all about you know identity politics but even within an an, an identity group you're never really uh you know at ease you're always suspicious that somebody is manipulating you for their uh, own purposes or advantage so um you know what we what we where we find ourselves right now is uh, you know with the Enlightenment there was this overvaluation, or I I would say uh, not overvaluation but a deracinization of, of of reason. In other words, it was, it was stripped or uh, you know pulled away from its theological foundations, and we were told that we could use reason uh, to do anything we needed to do. And then over the last 200 years or so, there's been a steady chipping away at that idea, using reason against reason, which is what we see with the postmodernist project, to the yeah. point where we don't even <laughs> trust reason anymore. Yeah, And, and all along, uh, Christianity is, has maintained that revelation, revelation is absolutely essential. So the postmodernists, in a strange way, have have worked their way back to the necessity of revelation. Isn't that a beautiful thing that there has to be, you know, some kind of mystical starting point where we have the, the God above addressing us. Now, the beautiful thing is as, as we maintain as Christians is that's been in scripture, And we've got that, we've got written yeah. accounts that are trustworthy of when this, the Lord has spoken to us so that, necessarily it's communal now it's not just a private personal thing where we have our mystical moment on mount whatever it's, but it's it's, it's 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 all of us as a church
1: it's very interesting you mentioned that about uh post-modernism. and one one could uh i don't know if you're familiar with john ellis's uh book against deconstruction um see if i can get that this book here okay.
0: Not and John familiar.
1: Ellis was uh, you know, very big in the, the literary world, and he wrote a book called uh, Literature Lost or something about that, the way in which social theory basically is hijacked the Western canon. Um, but he did a book, a critique, this book here, against deconstruction of Derrida in particular. And one of the things he notes is that there is this kind of mystical core that Derrida is after. He was an atheistic Jew or some – it's hard to use that term with some of these kind of figures because what they are is radical via negativa folk.
0: Right. They right. want
1: to get ra- they 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 want to get to to, to negate um, anything and bring it to, almost to a kind of void in which there is no positive anything because that notion of any kind of positive being for them um, is, is uh, well su- suffocates. Um, the kind of the creative, the play, the the, um, the kind of autonomy that they're after, you know and and sadly, they didn't you know they they didn't really understand what figures like Aquinas were up to. Um, that's another show but but the thing is is that they, they there is a kind of perverse mysticism, if you will, going on in 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 this postmodern, Um, view. And actually, I think one of the ways, and I'd be curious to kind of play around with an article or two on this writing one about the, the, you know, counter mysticisms, if you will, because I think that's where this, these kind of debates with postmodernity take place. I think you both kind of hinted that with what you presented. And and then there's this other thing is that it's interesting, um, a famous uh, metaphysician from that kind of Thomas line, he was talking about something the way in which we have first access to any kind of realism um, is is what he would call through interpersonal human interaction. Um, because what, what has to take place is the very thing that you're talking about um, that went wrong, that you—interpersonal um, conversation and meaning, communication— um, is something that 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 basically forces us out of the Kantian stuck in our head worlds because there's something that we don't have control over coming to us that we have to take in and then we have to digest and interact back so at the core of our experience of reality, something that we are not imposing meaning on but we're also having to re- reason with and negotiate um, reason in intercommunal um relation um that brings us to a radically different kind of relation to the world and god than one in which we're all stuck in our heads with our own meaning isolated from others but it was just interesting that he found at the core of a kind of realism that 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 our, our experience with it that we become kind of aware of ourselves and reality through that inner communion with other other humans
0: yeah I've been you know doing a lot of work at Philip Reef here recently, and you know it's it's fascinating as I reflect upon my own life. basically, two secular Jews have had a huge influence on me uh one is uh Harold Bloom <laughs> of all people, and uh his book uh, the American Religion, where he identified uh Gnosticism as being the American religion. it really forced me to kind of deal with of the Gnostic sort of undercurrent that runs through much of American religious experience. Uh, so he was praising, uh, Gnosticism and I was recoiling from it, uh, as he exposed <laughs> it to me. <laughs> but the other is Reef here. And one of the things that Reef is getting at is this, uh, this sense of, uh, well, we're isolated and, um, we're all kind of, uh, Pursuing a uh, kind of freedom that uh preferences uh the not to the is you know w- what he talks about is the primacy of possibility so in other words, instead of gratefully receiving the world that we have uh given to us, we uh destroy it in uh pursuit of the possible in other words freedom in an absolute sense in other words returning to the to the void uh, as it were, which is, uh, what a lot of the sexual and, uh, sort of uh, violent content of Western culture over the last couple of hundred years is intended to help kind of help us to kind of get at. And it fails, but what, what you end, what you end up with is a sense of radical isolation, a loneliness. Yeah. And, and what, what Reef, uh, shows, uh, is that the first encounter the first encounter has to be with God. It's hmm. it's got to be with God before you can actually have a genuine encounter with another human being. Now he doesn't spell it out quite as sort of uh, prosaically <laughs> as I just did. You know, he he has a way of dressing it all up in in very uh, you know profound uh, you know uh, verbiage. But when you boil it down, that's what he's getting at. You see, in other words, there's there's a sense. That in, for, in, order, in order for us to have a real encounter with each other, the authoritative word, the vertical authoritative no, has to come from on high. In other words, cutting us off from all of our vain pursuits and helping us to channel our energies in, in ways that are genuinely communal with God and with other human beings. So now mysticism, how does mysticism tie into all this? Well, it's, it, what we're getting at is that very first relationship, you know, the relationship to God. You know, it's mediated through Scripture. It's mediated through the sacraments. Of course, it's, it's God reaching out to us, uh, not us reaching out to God. You know, God is initi- the initiator and the one who makes it all possible by the Spirit. But that's got to be present. If we don't believe in that, then we don't believe in other people. I mean, yeah, in an absolute sense, how do I know you exist, Tom, outside my head? How do I know you <laughs> exist, Glenn, outside my head? The radical Kantian would say, nope, I can't know. I can only know my ideas or impressions that your sense, your, sort of my senses have have informed me uh, with uh, based on my the sense data that's come in. That's it. I don't know you. I don't know anything. I just know my head. And that's it. <laughs> I'm radically... Uh, trapped in myself, unless (laughs) there really is a God who sort of communicates to me. And that's the mystery, you know, we're talking about here. Now, you,
2: you mentioned
0: the extreme
2: version of via negativa that you get within postmodernism. One of the things that we don't really have time to get into again is the fact that via negativa is actually very much a part of I would argue, is central to a great deal of the Christian mystical tradition. Um, Just as a reminder for those of you who don't recognize the term, we did a show on this a couple of years ago, I guess by now. Um, There are two ways of approaching questions about God. Uh, The positive way, the via positiva, um, sometimes simply called positive theology, and the negative way, the via negativa or negative theology. The difference between the two is positive theology focuses on what we can say about God, the things that are revealed in scripture. The via negativa focuses on the ways in which all of our language about God falls short. Um, the example that I always use, which is sort of the most extreme example, I think, in a lot of ways, is the sentence God exists. Um, in one sense, that is a true statement, but in another sense, it actually isn't because the nature of God's existence is so totally radically different from any notion that we have of existence that it can lead us in the wrong direction of thinking of God as just the latest and greatest and biggest thing in, you know, that's like us just higher up on the food chain, um, The via negativa would focus on uh, Tom's favorite topic of God's transcendence. Mm -hmm. Uh, The fact that that he is totally unlike anything else that exists. So when we talk about existence, we inevitably think about it as in a contingent um, form, finite form, because that's the only kind of existence we know. And that's not the kind of existence that God has. So the very sentence, God exists is true in one sense, but is radically misleading in another. It's, it's, that kind of thing is the negative, the the via negativa, is, is you know, spending your time meditating on that, the way the limitations of language actually disguise more than they reveal about God. Were you going to say something, Tom?
1: Yeah, I was going to say that one of the things you notice in the early church before it really worked out of vocabulary— for for balancing you know these is you did see a lot of wrestling back and forth between you know the positive way the negative way but also kind of the cataphatic and the apophatic you know the the, the words right. that can be said and then the unsaying of them so yeah you were right you would often hear uh, uh, theologians like uh, Dionysius the Areopagite um where where they drew off of kind of uh, Neoplatonic language because that's that's the only metaphysical tools they had around for them to unpack kind of the biblical names of God, and so you would often hear them talk about God beyond being, right? Um, even being doesn't apply to God, and a lot of that is because they hadn't yet worked out an active notion of being, um, the act of being. That that that's a long history. Um, so what you do start to see with Augustine, and then coming to a culmination in Aquinas, and pretty much the Reformation just just said Aquinas got it right. On um, was 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 kind of starting to develop a, a vocabulary that could talk about that could balance the negative and the positive in a way in which the, the act that being is God, the, the language is pure act um th- that 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 has a way of of allowing us to to speak of the mystical dimensions but also the the positive dimensions in a way that we don't turn God like you said into uh, basically a big creature um, but that that's a complicated debate and stuff. But I think it's important for people to know that you will run into vocabulary in the early church in particular that sounds a little strange to us today. When when we say God exists, they would say, well, God is beyond all existence. Um, even we could say God doesn't exist. But what they're trying to do is rid it of any kind of creaturely type existence when they're talking about God. No,
0: we should uh, bring this into uh, a land, or we should bring this into uh, alignment to land. Into existence. (laughs) (laughs) Now, every once in a while I get an email from someone that says, no, no, you guys need to go on for hours and hours. Well, we we appreciate the sentiment and uh, we we are flattered. (laughs) But a couple of thoughts related to that. One is, uh, we do have other things to do. <laughs> it's like, for example, Glenn has to go somewhere tonight and, uh, we need to, we need to respect that. And, 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 and the other thing is that leaving people wanting more is actually a good thing. You know, there's a famous person named Gypsy Rose Lee who said, always leave them wanting more. Anyways, there'll be people running to the Google, to Google to figure out who Gypsy Rose Lee is. And once you, <laughs> once they find out, they'll get the joke. But anyway, um. Uh, we, we really do appreciate your interest in the theology podcast, but before I, I sort of go into the, the sign off, is there anything else you want to say, Glenn? Uh,
2: I hope that, that the discussion here, while it may have uh, raised some alarm bells in some people's minds, I hope it at least opens you up to the idea that there is a kind of proper form of Christian mysticism. I didn't get into all the really weird stuff that's out there that I don't, don't approve of. Um, an example, there was one convent in the Middle Ages where the nuns, uh, when they were imagining the Eucharist, which is, of course, in Catholic theology, the physical body of Christ, imagined themselves actually consuming his foreskin. Oh, no. Now, oh, that's... That, just, that just sort of takes into all I'm... kinds of really weird and bad yeah. places, okay? Yeah, yeah. I get that. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that There isn't a legitimate form of mysticism out there. And I think we've got to be careful about being a little bit too rationalistic in our approach to the faith rather than pneumatological.
0: I'm so glad we we saved that to the end. That was the whole point of this. Yeah, I'm so glad we saved that particular uh, point to the end. It, Glenn. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, just, I just had to throw that one in because it is the weirdest one that I know of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's probably weirder things going on right now in certain weird sections of the uh, Christian world. But anyway, well, uh, I guess the last thing I'd like to, like to kind of present to people and to think about, and, and I'm looking for a little bit of feedback on this. You know, Glenn and Tom and I, uh, we write books. And I just, uh, it just—it just occurred to me that many of the evangelical sort of mainstream presses have gotten to a place where they probably would be uncomfortable, even entertaining publishing something written by me. Now, maybe that's not the case with you and Glenn uh, or Tom and Glenn, but I suspect that some of the connections we have and the associations we have uh, would raise eyebrows. Now, what I'm getting at is that. That there, it, many of the larger evangelical presses have have kind of shifted over the last maybe five to ten years in a definite leftward uh, direction, and it's in part because just, they were bought by HarperCollins. That's it. They're they're not owned by Christians anymore. That's one of the things that you know. Like for example, I was I was asked recently why do you, why do you write for C- Canon Press and not for Baker Books, and I thought, do you have any idea? What has gone on in mainstream evangelical publishing over the last, say, five to ten years? If uh, folks out there have uh, presses, not canons, great, but they don't necessarily, uh, you know, have an interest in publishing everything we we want to write, um, and for for good reasons, not for bad reasons. Um, if folks out there have some presses they'd like to suggest to us, uh, as potential places to to look into with regard to presenting you know uh, books that we are interested in publishing that maybe canon's not interested in publishing uh, you can send us a you know uh, a note uh, you know we've got our theology podcast website there's a contact page there you can make a suggestion to us and uh, that would be great We're just kind of uh, looking for different sorts of uh, uh, options in terms of the things we want to do. Do you have any, guys have anything you want to say about any of that? I could see Glenn smiling there for a minute. Uh, <laughs> <except that came laughs> no,
2: I'm, I'm just, uh, um, Trinity House Publishers comes to mind right away. That's uh, uh, a sister organization to Reflections where I'm working. So that's the first one that comes to my mind. But yeah, we're we're certainly open to hearing other suggestions.
0: Yeah, right. Any thoughts there, Tom, as we wrap up?
1: No, I agree. Uh, the, you know, the more the more uh, more out there interested in the different range of interests that we have. Because, for example, I can write something on, say, systematic theology, and a certain group will be interested in that. But I want to write also um, in in areas of moral theology, and someone else may be interested. Or, you know, of course, Lewis, Tolkien, the whole literary side is another interest, um, and sci-fi is another growing interest. And so, each of these areas. Um, maybe maybe a different press would have a you know different kind of interest in that work, and of course from our angle, so that's got to you know they'd have to find some affinity with our angle on things. Right, right. Yeah.
0: Well, anyway, that was a great conversation, guys. Thanks uh, for for uh, suggesting that, Glenn, and thank you for listening to, uh, listening to the theology podcast. We really do appreciate your support. Many people uh you know write us on a weekly basis we have listeners around the world you know a couple of weeks back a few weeks back we you know your show on uh ukraine and russia glenn was uh well received by a lot of folks from different parts of the of the world and uh i just uh, i was curious to see you know do we have it do we actually have listeners in russia and ukraine and we do there are four cities in ukraine that listen to us and uh three in russia so it's just amazing the reach of the show Anyways, and they're not just individuals. There are groups of people in each of those places who listen to us each week. Anyway, uh, we appreciate all you folks wherever you are. Uh, Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye now.